You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. I wonder how many of us realized when we first signed up for teacher training, how much discomfort we were signing ourselves up for. I mean, other than the initial discomfort of trying something new, most of us were drawn to yoga for comfort, the peace of mind, the physical ease, the emotional comfort. But getting up in front of people to share the practice, that's terrifying. Then of course the unknown becomes familiar and teaching itself can become our comfort zone which is all well and good when you just teach for a studio or a gym and don't have to worry about finding clients or running a business. For those of us who decide to take ownership over our teaching and run our own classes, events, and programs, discomfort becomes the name of the game. Being an entrepreneur, contractor, sole trader, or business owner means stepping into leadership. And leadership is about pushing the edges of your abilities because this is how we grow, evolve, and ultimately increase our capacity to make a difference in the world. My guest on the podcast today is an example of a yoga teacher who decided to take discomfort head on and use it as a challenge instead of a deterrent. Erica Belanger is a yoga teacher, the host of the On and Off Your Mat podcast, and a transformational life coach. Being a teacher is part of who she is, and she uses yoga, podcasting, and life coaching as different entry points, all aiming to help her students and clients build happier, healthier, and more peaceful lives. After the discussion with Erica, I'm going to share a bit about the other side of the coin and my personal recent experience of the downsides of too much comfort. Let's jump right into this conversation about yoga, entrepreneurship, and getting comfortable with discomfort. And I will see you on the other side. I'd love to start with a little background, a little history of how you first found yoga and started practicing and why you became a teacher. Mm. Well, I was one of these people who started in hot yoga because I was looking just for another way to lose weight and You know, it was just another type of exercise for me when I started and it didn't take long that I realized it was not that (laughs) or I was getting something different out of it. And, you know, within the first, I want to say in the first class, but definitely within the first few classes, I really started to feel a shift in me. And now it was something I wanted to do because it felt good and not as a punishment for what I was eating. So that really helped me to come back. Um, the relationship with my teacher right away was something I've never experienced before in like physic. I was never really like physically active and like talented in any sport. So like whatever I did, I usually quit really quickly because I just, you know, it didn't feel good. Um, but I felt seen and I felt like, I mattered even if I was not particularly flexible. I was not that person in the room doing the fancy looking stuff. And I don't know, she just had a way to make me feel like it was important for me to be there. And it didn't matter if I was not skilled. So that made me want to continue to go, right? And over time, 
you just start to transform. You feel better. You There's so many benefits that you get from it. And back then I was a school teacher, but teacher being a teacher has always been a part of who I am. But being a school teacher was not the right path in the teaching world for me. It was very challenging. Um, and I was really sick at the time. My health wasn't good. And I stopped to take a year of leave and I never went back. And so after being off to take care of myself and my health, and I was like, what else can I do instead of being a school teacher, instead of going back? And I was like, well, I love yoga. At that point, I had been practicing for 10 years. It's the only other thing I was truly passionate about in a sense with like self-help and like this whole world. And so I was like, I'm going to teach yoga. And here we are today. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really curious, what skills from being a school teacher did you find transferred well to being mm. a yoga teacher? And what was really different? What did you have to relearn? Holding space. I felt like I had learned already, you know, holding the room, talking in front of people. I found myself when I started in my 200 hour feeling much more comfortable than other people that had never had to speak in front of people and had to multitask in front of people, you know, like watch the time, watch the music, watch they're doing like that was a skill that I already had from having a class of 30 something that you have to watch. You have to have 30 eyes, you know, looking at everything. You're continuing your lesson plan. You're still watching the time. You want to make sure you don't finish two minutes early before the bell because they have to, you know, you have to finish at the bell. So it's, it was a very similar uh, planning and multitasking kind of actions I needed to do. I think what I needed to relearn was my, I don't know if it was relearn, but that was something I hadn't learned as being, I was a French teacher and French was my first language. So it all kind of felt like this natural thing that I knew in and out already, where being a yoga teacher, even though I had been a student for 10 years, I didn't feel like I knew all the things that we might feel expected to teach about, right? I didn't know the anatomy. I didn't know, I didn't know all these things. I just had my experience. I didn't know the philosophy. I didn't know one Sanskrit word when I started my 200 other than like Shavasana, right? So like there was the content in a way that needed to be learned and my own self-trust into showing up and feeling like I know enough. I didn't have to do that um, being a teacher teaching French. That's really interesting because your story is that what struck you when you first started taking yoga was not the knowledge and the information that your teacher imparted, but it was the way she saw you and the way you were welcome to show up just as you are. Was yeah. there a point where you kind of had that epiphany of like, oh, actually, yes, it's great to know all these things and I want to keep studying it, but that's not what that's not what makes me a great teacher. Um, I think it took probably the first couple of years and the first couple of years of teaching, I would put myself, you know, put pressure on myself to be like, I have to know about this and teach on that instead of just showing up as I was, I could put that pressure. And I think after a while, as you start to have relationship with students and you start people coming, you start to see that they come back and they relate to you. 
They don't relate to you because you know about the chakras. They relate to you because what you say between two poses, that little quick one sentence about the way they're showing up, they relate to that. That spoke to them. And for me, that was kind of, I don't think there's a precise moment in time, but this is where I felt when people had a comment about their experience, it was not about the knowledge behind. It was about how they felt, how they connected, how they relate, how it made sense to them. It was on that. And I think that two years is actually pretty fast to figure that out. I think there's a lot of yoga teachers who are stuck in this cycle of imposter syndrome and lack of confidence for a lot longer than that. Even Mm -hmm. though, yeah, we want to have knowledgeable teachers for sure. But more than that, we want what you had, which is a teacher who sees us and who welcomes us to be in the room exactly as we are without any expectation about performance. That's what makes yoga so different from almost every other physical discipline. I agree. And that comes from your heart, you know, that comes from your own talk about you not only as a yogi but as a teacher too like you can't hold that space for people if you think that you're not enough as a teacher so I think that's why it takes a longer time and it's not that I just figured it out quickly I think it's a path I've been on for a long time and it just so happened to translate into my teaching in a shorter amount of time but I didn't start as a teacher I started way before that right exactly and I do think that showing up to begin teaching yoga with all of these other skill sets of time management and multitasking under pressure, right? All of those skills that you talked about before, that makes a big difference. A lot of yoga teachers I talk to want a timeline or want like some idea of how long it's going to take. And it's so individual. And that's one thing I, especially I tell yoga teachers who this is not their first career, It's like what you did before makes a big impact on how quickly you develop your skill set as a teacher. Mm -hmm, I agree. Was there also a point in time or was this from the beginning that you recognize like, oh, wow, I'm a teacher, but I also need to be an entrepreneur. (laughs) That took longer. I think I just jumped onto, I'm a teacher and I wanted to be a teacher and I don't know, I'm going to say this absolutely honestly, I don't know that I would have become a yoga teacher if I had realized from the beginning how much of an entrepreneur I would have to be, because I didn't see myself as an entrepreneur. I didn't see myself as a marketer. I didn't see myself as someone who knew how to write, like talking, you know, copyright, but even a blog post. Like I didn't see any of these things in myself. And I don't think I would have been, oh yeah, I could totally do all of these and juggle them at once. I really went in as I'm a teacher. I think you're not alone in that. I just don't even know any yoga teachers who start from the beginning, like who start from, I'm starting yoga teacher training to become a yoga teacher slash entrepreneur. That's so rare. The story that you have is similar to the story I have, which is like, yeah, I love yoga. I want to share it. So I'm going to become a teacher. I'm going to take this training. I'm going to start teaching. Okay. I really, this is, you know, the most enjoyable way that I have to earn a living. And it helps me by being a teacher and having more classes and having more students. It's, it feeds my practice. It feeds my 
the amount of attention and focus I can put on yoga in my life. So I want to do more of it. Wait a second here. Okay. Now I don't have any time to have another job, but I'm not really, I'm not really making a living here. Or I am making a living, but I'm running myself to the ground. For me, it was that it was working, but at one point you have to stop and be like, wow, can I hold this rhythm for the next 20 years? No, that's not going to, that's not going to do it. So it's also like thinking, all right, how else can I, how can I work less hours teaching? Because at one point I was teaching 25 classes a week, which is not this incredible thing I'm saying right now. A lot of people do that kind of crazy schedule. But it is kind of crazy to include the drive in between each spot, the time you are there before, the time you're there after. Those are big schedule and they're hard. They're hard for your body. So this side of entrepreneurship is how to be more efficient with your time, how to diversify your income, how to create all of these streams that it's not only the minutes you're teaching that you're being paid for or to make the most of these minutes of teaching because you're having more people come in. Right. So there's different ways, but tell me about the different streams of income that you have now created for your business. Well, there's the public classes that I teach. And that's what I started with only as a you know first teacher. It was public classes. Then over the time, I did more and more privates, which I still do right now. Half of my classes are private. The other half of are public. So still a, a, good, a good amount on my schedule. From there, I added, you know, one-time events like workshops and one-day retreat first because those were a bit, um, they, you would made a bit more money for your time, right? Because the either the split is different or the price tag is different on, on its own. Then I went to uh, podcasting. So I have my podcast too. And it's not so much that I'm making a huge revenue with the podcast, but it's directing people to me in other ways, or it's helping it with other opportunities. And there is some um, income as well that comes from there. I have built, I started with like a Patreon page where people could just donate to support the podcast. And then I build over time a full membership. So now there's a podcast membership. And then with COVID, I was like, oh, well, I need a class membership. So I build on that to add like a class membership where people can have, you know, video libraries and all things like that. So that's a big stream now of revenue for me. Um, and then retreats, right? So with COVID, obviously last year I had to cancel a few, but I have one in November. So going to Mexico with people, I think those are also ways that you teach like a shorter amount of time, but you're not paid as if you were teaching only single classes. So it's a different type of income. And then with my desire of helping people a little bit more than with their body, like the Dharma talk never felt like this enough, enough time for me to dig in what I wanted to dig in with people I've invested and studied and then became a life coach as well. So now I also have clients one-on-one -on -one and I'm building courses um, for them to do on their own. So products that are not attached to my time with the client. And I think that long-term is really sustainable where you create a product and then people can use it on their own time as they need. And then they can ask for extra support and, you know, pay for that time. So there's a lot. Wow. 
Yeah, yeah. that is a lot. Mm-hmm. It must take a tremendous amount of organization to run so many different things. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me some of your tricks and your tips for keeping so many different balls in the air. Huh? Uh, well, I mean, it's organization, the, like in the simplest way, meaning keeping a calendar and booking time for you to work, not just um, like I have a client at this time, but if I have a block, I'm going to block it. If I have a time, a, a block time in my calendar that's empty, and I know that this is a good part of day for me to work and do focus work because there's also that self-knowledge of I'm not going to book myself something in the evening. I'm not going to do it. Right. So if I know I have an open time in the morning, I'm actually going to block in my calendar and write what it is I'm going to do in this period of time. Um, so that's one way to really stay organized. Just keep everything at the same place and keep a list of tasks that you need to do, keep a list of goals you want to achieve, break those down, put them by dates. You know, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of time management skills and organization skills that come in. And then for me, there's also kind of not giving myself a choice and having like this non-negotiable. So either I, like, let's say for the podcast, I think for the podcast, if I would just say, I'll do an episode whenever I want to do an episode, I might do half the amount of episodes I'm doing, right? Because I would never have time. It would just fall off to the bottom of the to-do list and I wouldn't get it happen. So there's like this contract in my mind that I'm doing an episode every Monday and I skip one a month to give me a little bit of space of, you know, a little breather because I get overwhelmed in life. So knowing that I do three a month. And I prepare my calendar six months in advance, which Mondays I'm going to have off. And so I don't have, and my, I send that calendar to my editor. So I can't change, I, I can change it if I need to, but it's actually less effort to just follow it and stick with it. So these kind of little tricks to have you do what you have to do and not you know, push or procrastinate until you're not doing anything or yeah. Yeah. What I'm hearing from you kind of between the lines is that you have learned to leverage accountability, that you have accountability to yourself. You have accountability to your podcast editor, and you probably have some other layers of accountability in there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think accountability is really one way to, to, to look at it. The challenge with it for people is that it's really easy to just break that with when it's only with yourself, you know, to break that trusting relationship of, I said I would do something and I will follow through. But over time, yeah, over time you learn that if that matters and you're, I'm purposefully working on self-trust. Like that's one of the things I've been working on in the last few years. It's part of the things I've struggled with growing up and showing up and doing what I said I would do is one way that I can show myself that I'm trustworthy for myself in a way. So it's also part of this bigger picture of things I want to feel and experience and build. I'm curious if you have done some work or if you have a go-to strategy for your bigger why, because that was a big shift for me 
is when I got clear on why I was building a business and it was something that felt really important to me, that that's where my shift of self-accountability came. Mm -hmm. And anytime I wanted to, you know, break the promise I made to myself, (laughs) if all I had to do was return to this sense of, no, but this is my why, this is why I'm doing this. And this is why I can't break it. Do you have something like that? Yeah. Yeah. I think being unclear on why you're doing something is one guarantee that you're not going to follow through because it feels like, like there's going to be so many reasons that are going to stop you. Like the task is not fun. There's a lot that I need to do in a day that I actually don't enjoy in the world of entrepreneurship. That's not what I thought I signed up for. Right. So some tasks are unappealing. Some tasks feel difficult. Like I'm trying and I'm not that successful at it. So it's hard to stay motivated and continue to try Some task feels like I'm not empowered in them or I'm not in control. It's just things I should do. They're on the list of what a successful yoga teacher does, right? So being clear on why all of these things I actually don't really want to do that I should do them or what benefit they would bring into my life, that really makes the unappealing like less important, right? You're like, all right, there's a goal. I know this is going to bring me something positive. I'm going to stick with that. I'm going to keep that in mind. But if that's not clear, you can't keep it in mind. So one way that I've done it for myself and I've done it in um, with life coaching clients is asking why. But that's probably not, you know, the surface answer is probably not your answer. So this thing called a seven layer why or seven layer dip I've heard people call it so you ask the person why and you could do this if you're by yourself journaling right ask yourself why do I need to do why do I want to do this and then journal on that and then read that again and there's probably things in there you can ask why am I saying this so if you are saying I need to grow my mailing list because I need more clients why Why do you need more clients, really? Because I want more income. But why do you need more income? Because that alone is not also going to motivate you, probably, especially if you're in the yoga world to be a teacher and, you know, it's about more than money. So money is not going to do it. So, But why? What could you do with more money? Well, if I had more money, I could X, Y, Z. I don't know. Get an assistant, produce more content, produce a podcast, things that cost money to do in life. Or why would you do that? So I can have a bigger impact. So I can touch more people. Oh, now we're starting to get into the things that actually matter to you. Why do you want to have an impact, right? So you can continue like this with layers of layers of why until you get to the thing, in my case, that makes me cry. If I'm at the place where I'm getting emotional about my answer, I know I'm really getting into the heart, into the core of the real why behind I have to, I want to, I should do this thing. And are you willing to share that deeper why with us? Um, in general, because I feel like I have many different, you know, branches of that why. But in general, like to the most simple, simple, simple way to put it, it's just for people to feel good. Like, I know that sounds silly and that sounds obvious, but for people to feel like they could do anything they want. They can create anything they want. They can learn anything they want. So basically 
whatever they can envision for themselves, they can create it. They could have it in their life. And just not living in fear and letting that stop you. Like it's really coming from my own personal experience, right? But I want people to feel like they're awakening to who they are truly, not that conditioned version, what we're told who we are, you know, growing up or we should, who we should be, but really awaken to who we are and the places that need healing, that need transformation, finding a way to create that for ourselves so we can be that fullest version because it's only there in my experience that we have access to things like joy, like really deep love, even intimacy, connection. Those things don't happen if you're being like the surface version and you're just doing the things you think you should be doing and you're just going on autopilot. I want people to step off the autopilot and I want them to experience this thing that you can only experience in that place of connection, at least with yourself. <laughs> so it's a really long answer. I don't have like this short, you know, little pitch, but it's also always kind of changing with what's going on in my life and what I'm teaching in the moment. Like right now I'm really focused on the nervous system in my class, you know, in my public classes. And so a lot of my intention is around like, how can I help people figure out how to de-stress so they feel better, so they can do the things they want to do, so they can show up in their relationship in a way that's more, you know, authentic and connected. So there's all the branches they go kind of back and forth a bit like your nervous system, right? There's yeah, connection in and out. With your vision for really inspiring and helping your students and your clients to live more fully, to access the most present, most connected side of themselves, mm -hmm. where do you see, and let's narrow it down to yoga teachers because that's the audience where do you see yoga teachers specifically getting in their own way from being there hmm. in so many ways uh just going back to what we were saying in the beginning showing up with the feeling that you have to know it all to be worthy of be a teacher so all those beliefs about not being enough not knowing enough you know as a yoga teacher, those are really big things we put in our way that stop us. Um, things like wanting to be a perfectionist. You know, my, my class has to be perfect. What I say has to be perfect. You're removing that. You're, sometimes we over-prepare in a way that we remove the authenticity of the moment, the allowing of being present and see what actually comes through for that group in that moment. I'm not saying don't prepare at all. I'm saying allow space for yourself to receive, you know, allow silence. Like I think if we want to talk all the time and have all the cues and all the little things people can notice and work on while we're there, you don't create space, but we're afraid to be in the space. Like what if I don't have anything to say? Then what if, what if today is a class where you're supposed to hold silence for people? They need quiet. Like what if, so giving yourself permission to not be over-prepared yet being accountable with, for your students and showing up and having some level of, you know, preparation in a way that you're being professional, but you're also being able to be in the moment and be present. So I think that's one way. 
assuming that our classes need to be a certain way, that you're supposed to teach certain types of poses or you're supposed to teach certain type of sequencing, that gets in the way of what serves you and what serves your students best. Like I know in the beginning, I made my classes much harder than I do now because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And that made me a good teacher to be able to teach the harder poses or like, so all the expectations, all the stories that we, you know, like if I want to be an advanced this, or if I, it comes back to a lot of worth and trusting that what you bring is good enough and trusting that who you are is good enough. I think those are ways that you know, we can stop putting stuff in our way. So I think a lot of us can relate to this pattern, right? Of over-preparing, perfectionism. And we might also feel stuck about what do I do about it? What do I actually do to, to start to untangle some of those patterns? Yeah, I mean, first is self-knowledge, right? You have to become aware that you are doing that. And becoming aware of why you're doing that, like learning your own pattern and your own motivation. Why are you showing so prepared to the minute? Why are you thinking that if you teach this, like really digging into your own understanding of what you're doing, your choices and how you're showing up. I think from there, once you see those patterns, you can see and you can choose what you're ready to play with. Like you don't want to try to change everything at once. That's overwhelming. It's not going to feel good, but you can pick one thing and then you can take one step, right? Like take one little bit of a risk. Like if you're over uh, preparing, then still prepare your sequence. Maybe still prepare your intro if you do a Dharma talk or how you want to like get into it, but then give yourself space give yourself time during class to just say whatever comes up for you. And after class, write down how it felt to just be more spontaneous about this. Did anything interesting show up for you that maybe you wouldn't have thought about it when you were sitting down at your kitchen table preparing your class prior? So it's noticing the pattern, finding a way to interrupt that pattern or give yourself permission to try something different at a rhythm that feels safe and then replacing new, you know, old habits with new ways. And over time, you're going to find the ways that work best for you. Like I still prepare my class from the poses we're going to do. And I've been teaching for almost 10 years, but that structure feels very safe and steady for me to let myself be free in everything else. And I change my mind sometimes, and that's okay. But to have that container in my own experience allows me more freedom. Because if I had no container, I think I would be overthinking on like, how do I, what do I do next? Does that make sense? But further, like it would be too much for my brain to, too many decisions to make, right? So I'm making one decision to start, and then I'm giving myself space for the other. It kind of comes back to the seven layer dip. And it also speaks to a sadhana, a commitment to practice, practicing the self-awareness, the self-study over a long period of time, because it just isn't going to happen quickly, like you were kind of alluding to. 
and not only your self-study as a person, but self-study as who you are as a teacher and how you can continue to grow into that and continue to become a better teacher. Those are all going to be cues on how to become a better teacher for where you are in this moment. Exactly. So originally, when we talked about having this conversation, we talked about procrastination. And that hasn't, we've had so much else come up. We haven't talked about that yet, but I want to make sure that we have some space and some room for that. So tell me how you've seen procrastination coming up for yoga teachers. Well, I think it's on that entrepreneurship side. Anything we don't quite want to do, it's really easy to push them to the side and not do it. Like I mentioned, there's a lot of tasks that we might find unappealing. There's a lot of things that, you know, I just want to teach yoga. (laughs) And so we give ourselves that excuse to then not grow our business, not make a place for ourselves to have a bigger impact, you know, to make more income in a way that's more sustainable. So we have space for self-care. So those are all ways that, you know, we might lose if we procrastinate on building our entrepreneurial side on top of just adding stress to our life. I think it relates back to the piece of the conversation around self-integrity. I think a lot of the stories that we tell ourselves is, well, if I just grow big enough, I can hire somebody else to do that. Mm -hmm. But by avoiding it, what we don't want to do, we actually hold back our growth and we delay our ability to hire somebody else to do it. I've seen so often the goals and visions of yoga teachers drag out for years and years and years for much longer than they need to, because there's something uncomfortable Mm -hmm. that they put off doing. And there's some kind of story, whether it's like safety, I don't want to be that visible, or I want to, I want to wait till I'm big enough to hire somebody. But to me, it's about make a decision and then follow through on it. And then you can decide whether or not that was a good idea and do it again, whether you want to do it again. But if you don't follow through on the promises you make to yourself, not only will you not respect yourself as much, but you won't have enough information to know whether it was a good decision or not. Yeah, it does come back to that self-trust for sure. I think one of the things that procrastination costs us is, you know, destroying our self-trust because that is the one place where we say we're going to do something and then we don't. And there's one thing that you said that really stuck out for me and it's the discomfort. And I think that's the key in procrastination is being okay to do the thing that's uncomfortable. It's stepping forward anyway when it's uncomfortable. Whether you're going to succeed or not, it doesn't even matter that much because as you say, you're going to learn something. You're either not going to do that again because that was not quite for you or it was not a version that was for you, or you're going to tweak it to do better, or you're going to repeat the exact same way, but because it actually did work. Right. So either way, it's just a step to go towards that bigger dream. So it doesn't stay there in for 10 years forever. Right. Like you, it never gets closer to you because you never take steps. Right. And this might be dreams like hosting a retreat for yoga teacher. Those are those are things that yoga teachers do want to host in the future. And sometimes it just stays in the future forever. It might be building a membership and having an online platform like that's a lot of work. But once you do it, it's done. And you have this thing for your, building a website, 
building a mailing list. That's not a one time, that's strategies and steps that you'll take over years to build something. And you're going to learn every step of the way, what works, what doesn't, right? So I think really the idea of doing the uncomfortable thing and learning to do that is what's going to help you grow, not only in your business, but it's just going to stop you from procrastinating in any area of your life. I really think procrastination is a strategy for us to avoid the discomfort. You know, one thing that has absolutely changed my life, and I don't have one specific moment that this was triggered, but it's been a slow build, is the realization that when I'm uncomfortable, it means I'm in the right place. It means I'm in a place of growth. You know, mm-hmm. and we talked earlier about like your highest self or your best self. I kind of think of that as being a work in progress. So it's like each moment we have a highest version of ourselves that we are capable of now. And that's going to change. And hopefully yeah. it will expand and not contract, but who knows? Cause life is weird. But when we are really showing up fully, we're almost always going to be a little uncomfortable, but it's actually going to feel good too. Like if we can change our relationship to discomfort and especially that emotional discomfort of doing something new, of doing something that we didn't see ourselves as capable of before, it provides this fuel for us to show up in that full version of ourselves. This is so great for yoga teachers, because if you think back to like your first class, your, your first experience of teaching yoga, you're probably uncomfortable. You're probably oh nervous, God, yeah. you're, you know, like it's hard, it, but in a way that fueled you to really Was it show worth up, it? right? Yeah. And over time, your capacity to show up as a teacher grew. But it's those moments when you're uncomfortable, when you're put into a new teaching situation, right? You're teaching at a festival with hundreds of people, or all of a sudden you're teaching online or whatever the new situation is that pushes you out of your comfort zone. That's your opportunity for growth. So what I learned for myself and, and want to share and invite other yoga teachers to experience also is use the feeling of discomfort, not as a negative trigger, but as a positive one. Mm, Yeah. And don't get me wrong. Like there are days where I like, you know, want to curl up on the couch (laughs) with a cup of hot cocoa and just like avoid the world. Right. It's not, it's not like a all or nothing deal, but more often than not, can you say, Oh, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable. Awesome. Exactly. It's just changing your perspective and allowing the possibility that discomfort might yield a positive result. It's just allowing that in your mind instead of discomfort is pain. Pain is no, I want to avoid. Just can you include that? Maybe that's going to be worth it. Maybe that's the source of what you want. Maybe that's going to give you that thing you've been longing for, you know, so it's just opening to the possibility. Mm, I love it. So as we wrap up our conversation, is there anything else that we haven't talked about yet that you want to make sure that you share with yoga teachers or anything that we have talked about that you feel like you really want to emphasize? Mm. 
Well, I think, I think it's just remembering that you take that responsibility for yourself. And if you're clear on what you want and why you want it, then you know how to take the steps. And like we said, there's cues that shows you, there's cues and clues that shows you what direction you're going. Don't let yourself be stopped by what is uncomfortable, what is scary, what makes you think you're not worthy or good enough as a teacher. So I think continue your own practice of self-awareness, look at the darker corners of it and see if that can make you become a better teacher and a fuller embodied, joyful version of yourself. Well said. If listeners want to learn more about you and your work, where should they go? They can go to my website, ericabelanger.com, or they can come on Instagram. I'm on no other social platform, really. So Instagram at erica.belanger, or the podcast is on and off your mat podcast as in, uh, on Instagram. So those are all the three places. Perfect. Thank you so much, Erica. Thanks for getting into all of these layers. I love the concept of the seven layer dip. That's my favorite <laughs> because good. it's so good, memorable. Good, good, good. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And go until you, you, maybe you not cry. Maybe you have a different response that tells you that you've hit it on the head. You know, everybody has those things, but for me, like, unless I have cried, I know I haven't gotten there. <laughs> so find that clue for yourself that you're at the end of your dip. Love it. Love it. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I love what Erica said about making friends with discomfort because it reminds me of my own journey with yoga in a way that feels extremely relevant to some things I'm struggling with and working through in my own life right now. For most of my career as a yoga teacher, I lived with a kind of extreme amount of stress. I was in a relationship with a person who struggles with integrity. I had an undiagnosed special needs child and I was living way below the poverty line, cobbling things together with shoestring and tape. Yoga was the lifeline that both helped me cope and also taught me to turn towards my fears instead of away from them. This was huge because it's pretty counter to natural human instincts. Okay, fast forward to my life right now though. For the past year, I've actually been struggling with depression. I've had seasonal depression on and off for as long as I can remember. But this is the first year that it didn't get better in the spring. So over this summer, I spent a lot of time studying and digging into what the heck was different this year from other periods of my life. And there's a lot of factors that I'm not going to go into so that this doesn't turn into a whole full-length podcast episode. But the relevant thing for this conversation is that there actually is not enough stress in my life right now. That's right. Things are too good. I'm in a wonderful and stable relationship. I live in a comfortable house. My business is doing great. And I have very little family stress, at least compared to the past. You see, our bodies and our brains have evolved to prioritize a state called homeostasis, which essentially means balance. This means that our nervous system is constantly vigilant for ways that our bodies might be off balance. And there are millions of unconscious mechanisms to bring us back towards balance that are outside of our conscious control. These include things like shivering when we're cold, which is our body's attempt to raise our temperature. 
included in this complex system of reactions to maintain homeostasis is something that neuroscientists call the pleasure-pain balance. In essence, it means that every time we experience pleasure, there's also going to be an after effect of some kind of pain, usually emotional pain, often felt as a sense of lack or emptiness. Think of the letdown we often feel after a big goal has been accomplished or something that we're really looking forward to is over. A few examples that come to mind include the letdown of Christmas Day and the sense of listlessness that I felt after graduating from college. Conversely, when we experience pain, our body has ways of prioritizing the feeling of pleasure afterwards. Think, for example, of the endorphins that follow some kind of physical trauma or the sense of relief and ease and peace when a period of high stress is over. On one level, learning about the pleasure-pain balance was disheartening. It felt kind of like a betrayal. You mean I pretty much have to pay for each moment of pleasure with an equal or greater amount of pain? That feels so unfair and so counter to the cultural stories that we've been fed about achievement. Fortunately, as I kept reading and studying and learning, I was able to see a bigger part of the picture. And of course, it's more complex than just a simple equation. You see, the pleasure-pain balance is primarily governed by the neurotransmitter dopamine. Dopamine regulates desire and motivation. So achievement that's greater than expected causes a spike in dopamine that binds up the available dopamine that's usually floating around, which means that a spike always causes a corresponding drop as those levels recalibrate. Now here's where it gets interesting. The way to mitigate the painful effects of that rebalancing act is to stimulate the neurotransmitters that provide pleasure in smaller and less intense ways through a relationship with the here and now. These include neurotransmitters such as GABA, oxytocin, and serotonin. The previous version of my life, which included super high levels of stress, taught me how to access balance by using pain and discomfort as a flag to tell me it was time to focus on the here and now because that's where pleasure was available. That's where comfort was available. But because I was using discomfort and stress as a flag to bring me into the here and now, I wasn't so great at doing that in my new, more comfortable life because the triggers are different. The triggers aren't there, the ones that I was relying on. Specifically, the pain caused by external circumstances is just easier to recognize as pain. It's extremely confusing to be in a type of pain caused by too much comfort. And it's taken me a lot of research and studying and contemplating to recognize it at least to recognize it in myself, because I've known for a long time that this is a pattern that's really common in our culture, in our, our developed world with so much comfort, that this comfort ends up leading us into discomfort. I could see it from the outside. I just couldn't see it from the inside. Okay, let's be real. I do not have any desire to trade my new life for my old life. But the contrast and being able to look at them side by side and see the effects of each is a really powerful teacher for me. So I'm currently taking a two-pronged approach. One, I'm actually being more deliberate about introducing stress into my life through things like 
cold water exposure, exercise, and even stepping out of my comfort zone, like looking for opportunities to step out of my comfort zone. And I'm also consciously developing new triggers to remind myself to be in the present moment beyond my morning yoga and meditation practice, which has always been there for me. But what I recognized over this past year was that it wasn't enough. Like it wasn't doing its job anymore. And even though I had stated the intention of using that practice as a reminder to stay connected throughout my day, I wasn't doing it enough. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe that my practice helped. And without it, I think my symptoms of depression would have been a lot more severe. However, this was just the next layer of realization for me, the next layer of an invitation into living my values throughout my whole day. As always, it's definitely a work in process, but I thought that some of you might be able to recognize yourselves either in the old version of my life or the new one and find some benefit from hearing my story. The irony here is there just isn't any escape from doing the work. You have to do it when life is stressful and you have to do it when life is easy. So maybe I should change the name of this episode to getting comfortable with discomfort and getting uncomfortable with comfort. Nah, I think that would be way too long and confusing. But now that you've listened all the way through, hopefully you get a better sense of the relationship. So I'll leave you with a reminder and invitation to turn to the practices that ground you in the here and now, both when life is challenging and also when it's comfortable. For me, that practice starts with asana and meditation in the morning, but that snippet of my day is not going to be enough if I don't use it to influence how I show up for the rest of the day and actually build in some triggers and reminders in the rest of my day to pause and be in the present moment and not always working for the future. I hope this conversation about comfort and discomfort was helpful for you, and I hope you can apply it both to your life and to your teaching. Thank you as always for listening, and thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.